cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're tuned into the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. It is so wonderful to be here as usual. My name is Kingsley Kipuri, and I'm going to be hanging out with you for the next hour. Um, Greg Nicholson, finally back. Good to see you. How are you doing? Um, I'm good. Great to be back in the studio. I'm good. I mean, we've got a really fun show lined up. Um, we'll be talking about something that the country has been grappling with, at least over the past week, arguably for the past couple of years. Which is how do we mobilize for social change when you feel angry, when you feel agitated, when you feel like, you know, the institutions and things around you are not, you know, representing you adequately. What, what is the thing you can do? What is the action that you can take to feel that you can sort of trigger some kind of response aligned with, you know, the kind of outcomes you want to see? Um, Greg, uh, we didn't meet yesterday. Did you wear a black t-shirt for Black Monday? I was wearing black pants and a white shirt, actually. So I was just, I was, I was hedging my bets. <laughs> but no, to be honest, I yeah. actually didn't really hear much about the Black Monday thing. I heard it briefly mentioned yeah. by different journals I was around on Sunday, but I didn't know much about it. The most I saw about it actually was on social media on Monday yeah. when a lot of people were, were criticizing the campaign, saying it was, it was driven, um, and aimed to protect the interests of white South Africans. So yeah. that, that's when I really sort of caught on to it, but I never really actually figured out fully quite what it was yeah I'm, I'm really glad black monday came up i feel like it 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 forced so many conversations so one about saying oh if we don't know who's behind this how do we know we can trust you some saying this is very opportunistic um you never trusted black leadership and suddenly you have an avenue to align with people and under pretending you want to see jacob zoom out but really you know it's it's a sinister thing and you actually want to see the president out and a lot of questions for me at least around what is an effective what 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 kinds of mobilizing mobilization activity can we take that 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 meets my individual standards and perhaps you know broader standards that we define as being def- effective because you know a lot of people are saying okay I put on a t-shirt I go to work in a black t-shirt and then what you know that's not going to give anybody sleepless nights really yeah I think um, the question as to what sort of activism, what sort of organizing, what sort of movements actually work and are effective uh, are crucial for us at this stage. Obviously, there's a lot of talk about about building sort of um, movements or, or hitting the streets or, or sort of any sort of campaign after President Jacob Zuma decided to reshuffle the, the cabinet last week. But that's not the only thing. We've, we've There's been activists and sort of some of the older politicians and also the younger guard for years have been talking about the need to sort of reinvigorate civil society um, movements. Uh, I think w- w- when you look at sort of the myriad of challenges the country's face- facing from, you know, the, the triple threats of poverty, unemployment and, and inequality through to health challenges, um, through to labor issues, through to issues of structural racism, uh, education issues, issues with, with um, both crime and policing in the country. Um, there's a lot of people, I think, that look back perhaps to the successes of, you know, things like the mass democratic movement that, that really ramped up towards the end of a, end of apartheid or, or the treatment action campaign, which in the early 2000s helped build sort of a coalition of citizens around pushing for, for retrovials for, for people who have HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think this issue is coming back up once again as to given all these challenges, many inherited from the apartheid and colonial states, um, many perpetuated and, and, 
and made worse or, or, or perhaps self-created by, by the democratic government, what can we do and how as citizens can we try to come together and change the trajectory that we're on? Absolutely. And I think that's a really big question that everybody's asking themselves of saying, in a democracy, the people should have the power. How do I go about asserting my power? Um, you know, in 2017 South Africa. And that's what we'll be spending the next hour on. So we'll be speaking to three people who know a lot about agitating for social change. Firstly is Jay Naidu, uh, who's got a model career really as an organizer that we can all learn from. And uh, who's a founding, uh, general secretary of Kosatu. We've got Anele Yawa, um, who's general, national general secretary over at the treatment action campaign, the TAC, and who's had a long career in organizing prior to that. And lastly, we have Busi Siwe Seawe, who's a fees must fall activist and was also really crucial to a lot of the conversations and decisions that were Taking, taken, sorry, as fees must fall captured, uh, you know, the national imagination, one might say. Okay, time to get started. First, we'll start with uh, Jay Naidu, who I've mentioned is the founding general secretary of Kosatu. Um, Jay, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. Very good to okay. be on the show. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us. Um, now, my, my, my first question is really th- uh, thinking about something you mentioned at the gathering, the event, the Daily Maverick hosted. It might have been last year, perhaps the year before. And you said, as an organizer, when you see a lot of the sort of the political climate in the country and the, and the emotion in the country, you felt like it was a, arguably a really great time to be an organizer and a great time to get out there and, and make things happen. Do you still have that sense? Oh, absolutely. As I described it, it's an organizer's paradise. You have a government and you have business and you have you know, a corrupt elite in the country shooting themselves in the foot every day. And and we have a democracy where you're not thrown into jail for organizing a protest, speaking against the president, organizing at a community level. And so I, I can't understand why people say, I don't know what to do. I mean, there are thousand and one causes you could take up, but I think movements are not built from the top or through press conferences or having Twitter followers or being on Facebook. It's built by working painstakingly, and, uh, you know, with, with great dedication and courage at a grassroots level so that you work in communities or in a community could be anything. It could be a factory floor. Or it could be a university. It could be a business. It could be a village. This is what I call constituencies. But it's dedicated, painstaking work. It's not like, you know, you go and have a weekend workshop and then suddenly you think you have a movement. So I think that work where people are co-creating the future they want, they are taking on the struggles that they believe are most important Mm. in their minds, that one begins to build a political consciousness and eventually it becomes a consciousness about change beyond their boundaries, which is either a school, a university or community. And I think that what we have today is a notion that, uh, you know, we could uh, organize a march and the march is organization. You know, I think that's a small part of organizing. And what is, what I do not see anymore is organizers who spend their times working painstakingly, like I said, at a grassroots level, at the coalface. What we see is a lot of people that, you know, sort of spend more time trying to raise money from donors than spending time talking to people around the issues that most concern them. And I think that's our problem today, not just in South Africa, but the world, that civil society has become part of the system. They are not trusted by young people. Look at the fees must fall movement that arose around the education crisis. Uh, I think that they, you know, it's that they don't trust anyone. They don't young, you know, young people don't trust civil society. They don't trust governments. They don't trust business. 
And that's what we've had is a breakdown of trust. And the only way you can resolve it is by starting to listen. But a lot of the leaders of civil society are so arrogant just like the political elites, that they don't, they don't listen. They think that they have the solutions for people's problems, when in fact, in fact, the most important thing of organizing is learning to shut your mouth and learning that people who are suffering hardship know more about their problem and about the solutions. And so you co-create the pathway to the future. And I, I just don't see much of that work taking place within our country or in, in the whole world. Wow, really powerful start, Jen. You've said so many things I want to jump into. Um, I mean, I'll start way at the start where you said a lot of the work that needs to be done uh, is building from the ground up and it's at a grassroots level and you feel like that's missing. Do you mind taking us back to some of the work you did uh, when, when, when mobilizing around workers and, and you mentioned some of the things around pamphlets and just, you know, going door to door. Would you mind talking us through some of the things you had to do when organizing yeah, and bringing yeah. people together, an example yeah. of how we might learn from that? You know, you, you know I, I came out of the black consciousness movement and of course we were deeply intellectual. We had, had a great philosophy about asserting our right as black people yeah. and being proud to be black. But, you know, when I started as a trade union organized, I was a volunteer. You know, just ask yourself today, if you look at the whole cross-section of people in civil society, a lot of them are part of an industry rather than volunteers. Mm -hmm. What we need to do is bring back volunteerism. And I remember writing a pamphlet when I was standing outside the gate of, uh, of a factory called Beacon Suites in, in, uh, in Durban, and I'm handing out pamphlets, and it talked about the class struggle, and it talked about, you know, the dictatorship of the proletariat. And, you know, for a week, I stood there outside that gate from 4 o'clock in the morning to catch the first ship to 10 o'clock in the evening, and I sat there for a whole week being harassed by the police, by the management. And virtually no one took a pamphlet from me. And when they mm. took a pamphlet from me, they threw it away without really reading it. Because, And then one day, an old man came past and said, hey, sonny boy, come walk with me. And he walked me from the gate to the, to the bus stop. And it, he was an old trade union activist. And what did he say to me? He said, you know what? Most of the people take your pamphlet and they cannot understand what you're talking about. Mm. Socialism. You know, it's like... At the moment, their biggest concern is that they don't have, they have, don't have job security. They are unfairly dismissed. They have low wages. Women are dismissed when they fall pregnant. You can't talk about socialism when their lives are about the reality that they face day to day. So first thing, learn to listen. Learn to shut your mouth, like I say, and learn to listen to people. And secondly, you are standing outside the, the factory gate. Anyone that talks to you, you are an agitator. They call you a communist. Mm. Anyone that talks to you will be victimized. So rather than standing outside the gate, wait for the workers to come out, jump in the bus with them, jump off the bus when they're getting to their homes, and go and sit in their homes and start organizing there. Now, that takes a very different attitude. But most activists I meet today, particularly the leadership of, of organizations, they seem to know the answer for questions that haven't been asked by our people. They are so clever that they, they think they have all the solutions. And this is what we have as a problem of politics in this country, where leaders, whether they're in civil society, whether they're in business, and particularly the ones in government, seem to think that they know more about what the people need than the people themselves. So they have some divine power to, to govern us. And I think that's the fundamental issue that we have in South Africa and the world. And that's why we elect people 
against our own interests. We know they are corrupt. We know that they are in the pockets of people that have, have bought them off because, you know, through money, through tenders, and through paying off their families. And yet we continue to, to not see that the real strength of mobilizing is working patiently with our people. It's very easy to set up an organization. And we think by setting up organizations that setting up organizations hmm. is we are in struggle. In fact, the difference between running an organization and running a movement or building a movement is that in a movement, things are happening because it's, the spark has caught fire and everyone's imagination has been captured. They go out and do things that the people running the organization don't know. And that's how Kusato Book became from an organization became a movement. That's how we built the MDM, that everyone felt they had a role. And the coalition of organizations around a single-based issue, which is fighting for our freedom, one person, one vote, in a non-racial, democratic, non-sexist South Africa, what became the rallying call. So what is the rallying call today? It cannot just be Zuma should fall. Because imagine tomorrow Zuma steps down and someone else steps into his, into his place. Do you think that people in Deep Sloot or in any slum or in any village in this country will have their needs met the next day or in the next 10 years? It has to be about defining what is the system, what is the democracy that our constitution guarantees that, that delivers a more meaningful, better life to our people. And right now, there's a disconnect between the elites who are more concerned about the RAND may fall and the fact that we may be downgraded than about the real issues of our country, that 14 million people go to bed hungry every day in a country that claims to be food secure. One in three lives in a social ground, one step away from starvation, and one in three is unemployed. The land issue has to be dealt with. The transformation of, economic, of our economy has to be dealt with. And yet, all the conversation about mobilizing has been... Oh, Zuma is, is destroying our wealth. So what is the real wealth of our country? It is our people. Until we get that narrative right, we will fail to challenge the current predatory elites in power. I mean, the more you speak, I feel like, at least what's coming to mind, there seems to be an almost... A major gap, and I and I think see this gap as if we take you know point A, which is a community. I think Bekersdal is one community that's been you know protesting and, and and trying to get some attention on their issues for years, uh, and they you know will occupy roads, they will burn things, they will damage property, and they are only met by police. The police come, some people get arrested, and life goes on. And then we have another sort of side of that, which is a lot of urban middle class people who, as you've mentioned, are only interested. Or only suddenly become interested when it affects them. So that's when you're talking about things like the rand. Is it one? What what can a community that feels like they're trying to get attention in the only way they know how, which is often through you know occupying public areas and through often causing destruction, what can they do to make sort of a leap into sort of getting meaningful attention? As for the second part of that is, what do the middle class urban people, how do they engage with a community like that without it appearing that they're appropriating other people's struggles and they don't really understand? Well, I think the, 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 the protest action, and we are the protest capital of the world, basically, yeah. in South Africa, is there is the fact that protests end up inevitably in violence, whether it's at a grassroots community that is really living in 
absolutely marginalized existence of poverty, inequality, and unemployment, or whether it's in our universities who represent the future leadership of our country, why does it end up in violence? Well, because of the weakness of civil society, because of the weakness of mass movements in this country, that what happens is that people get so frustrated because they have legitimate grievances that at the end of the day, the only way they feel that they can attract the attention of those in power is to burn something that represents the state authority. Hmm. And so what happens then is that the police come in, becomes a battering ram, very much like what happened under apartheid. And so what happens? The cycle of violence starts, and violence becomes the language. That violence is our failure to organize. And we believe that some are and so I'll argue that that is very different. The second thing is that in the current environment where there's been a breakdown of governance, where people have gone into government largely to seeing, at, uh, seeing it as a business opportunity, and the big fight in the cabinet reshuffle and all the shenanigans in government at that level, or the, the, the collusion between companies that are raising prices, whether it's of bread or whether it's cell phone, whether it's banking charges, is, is, is so disconnected from the reality of what the majority of people in this country find. And, and the, what we need to think seriously about is for movements like, you know, Anela, who's going to come on your show now, rethinking, and people from civil society rethinking how we will build a movement of the future around the fundamental issues of our, of our country. And that is about inequality. It is about unemployment and joblessness. It is about the, the question of poverty. It is about the fact that we have not made democracy in South Africa meaningful for the majority of black people. And until that happens, until we have that conversation, I think we will never form the type of coalition that will topple the current elites who are taking us down at the trajectory towards the system. Um, Jay, I think my final question before I let you Thank go you. is you've, you've, you've mentioned a, a couple of things, and, and, and I worry that is there, is there a danger, or do you think perhaps part of the reason we're not seeing the kind of movement building we're seeing now is perhaps when, when the issues are, are too broad um, and when there's so many challenges that we see in, in, in South Africa today, is there, is, there, is there political energy that's lost when we say put on a black t-shirt because everything's terrible? Do we lose, do we lose an energy and a political energy and capital there? And, and can you create, give us any advice on how to perhaps have narrower, broad, broad but still narrower targets that we can focus and, and, and use that as a way to maintain energy around what we mobilize for? There have always been issues, multiple issues that faced us. In the 1980s, there were a, a quadruple multiple issues. And, and we faced all of them. At the end of the day, it has to come back to the issue of building a movement around a narrative that captures the imagination of our population. And it cannot just be a narrative around what the rating agencies think about us. Mm. It has to be about fundamental transformation of, of South Africa in a way that the material and, and meaningful contribution of black people is knowledge that we tackle the land issue. We cannot live in a country that claims to be a democracy where 80% of the property held land still rests in the hands of, of a white minority. No. We cannot live in a country where 
the wealth, the economic wealth of our country still remains in the hands of, of those elites that controlled it in the past. And if we are going to talk about the robber barons of today, let's talk about the robber barons of yesterday. And this is where we're talking about that meaningful conversation is not taking place. And, and I think until we tackle that, we will never have the support of people that are living, the majority of people that are living in townships and slums and villages of our country. And so I think that, yes, I think that we need courageous leadership. And it will come from middle classes, but not just fighting for middle class issues. Mm. And I don't accept this argument that somehow that, you know, the rand falls and the worst affected are the poor. You know, the poor are not traveling to London and New York and, and Paris, you know. The poor don't have shares sitting in companies that are losing values. You know, and I think until we tackle those issues, until we have a narrative about what is the democracy we want, what is it, how do we put humanity back into politics? How do we put humanity back into economics, in, into the workplace, into our universities? How do we think about humanity in our communities? I think most, most of our, my fellow white citizens have never even been in a township, you know, until we build a real relationship between white and black people in mm. this country where black suffering and black pain and black poverty has to be acknowledged and recognized and dealt with, we will never build the rainbow nation that we aspire to. And that's the hard truth that we should be debating in this moment of crisis in our country. Jane, I do really, really strong words. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I hope you can accept the challenge. I can't, it'll be a crime to let you go without mentioning that you've written a book on this and you're launching this tomorrow, yes? Yes, yes, and I am launching it and it's my letter to the next generation. It's about change, organizing tomorrow, today. And I'm saying, until we begin to acknowledge the real issues of our country, that the South Africa of our dreams will not be there. But we can change this trajectory. And it's not just about changing those that sit in the citadels of power. It's a changing how we define our humanity and what does humanity mean and an agreement between black and white in this country about the definition of what it is to be human. Absolutely. Jane thanks for chatting to us. Now, Greg, as... As I, as I hear sort of Jay speak and, you know, really captivated by sort of the passion that he speaks with, because it's not, you know, it's not hot air passion. It's, I have done this before and this is what you need to do. I'm, 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 I'm curious by that sort of the one line around you have to, you, have, you need a narrative that captures the imagination. Um, and, and I wonder if that's perhaps some of what we're missing. When we say, come on, let's do this, come on, let's do this, you need to start from a place of what is the society we want to create and start from there. And perhaps we've, perhaps we've jumped a few steps. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think one of the potential challenges that we might be facing yeah. now, <clears throat> excuse me, is that we're currently, I think, disenfranchised with the narrative that we've been sold or perhaps perhaps the the narrative that was delivered to South Africans. You mean when, the Rainbow Nation, I assume? Well, not, not just the Rainbow yeah. Nation, but, but certain ideals and policies that the ANC introduced. Yep. Um, I think often we refer, refer the Rainbow Nation um, referring closer to our sort of racial, aspiring harmony, for racial harmony. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's also, I think, certain policies that um, the government has introduced that have either been poorly implemented or in retrospect, perhaps they weren't the correct policies we should have followed. 
whether there was another option or not is obviously debatable. But I think that's one issue with with the idea of the imagination. Um, I think that at this moment we're so sort of uh, murdered in scandal and and anger and often just fatigue with all of the issues and the politics in the country um, that it's so hard to to think about what the country should actually look like to create a new sort of vision for South Africa after we're expressing dissatisfaction for the current vision that we've tried. Um, I think one, one of the issues for what Jay was talking about for me, and perhaps we can talk a bit to Anela about this, is um, the what, what he was saying about organizing and building movements and and creating change is actually about patient work. It's about that painstaking day-to-day groundwork and i know there are lots of community organizations that are doing great work out there but i think often what happens when we see a big scandal come up is you know people want to just jump into something but actually don't realize that this thing takes a lot of time it takes years to build this stuff to build a network of support to sell that or, or to i guess canvas that narrative that you're trying to put across to to build loyal um, and like a loyal community, I guess I'd say, that can actually enact some of these plans. We're just about to chat to somebody who knows a lot about how to make this happen. Um, we're just about to go to Anele Yawa, who's the National Ge- General Secretary or the Treatment Action Campaign. Anele, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you, my Okay, friend. wonderful. Anele, as always, it's good to have you on. And I'd just love to start really by learning from the, sort of the TAC and ARV case study, as one might call it. And, and I'll start by asking, the TAC was so successful in getting everyday South Africans from various backgrounds to feel a sense of ownership and a sense of urgency around the HIV AIDS crisis and, and, and how we should address it and treat it. In your view, what are the key elements of, of the TAC success in making that happen? Well, firstly, good day to you and, 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 and to the listeners. Thank you. And secondly, I, I don't think I will, I will last long on this conversation because I have to run to other meetings. Okay. But also, uh, learning, from, learning from the work of tech, yeah. one of TAC's strengths and, and, and pillars is, is one, social mobilization. And the fact that TAC is rooted within community, TAC is a membership-based organization. So one of the things that we have learned through that process is to say, in order for a social movement like TAC to be strong, visible, and be heard, the power lies with the people on the ground. But it should that those people should not be a rented crowd. It must be people who are informed about what is actually happening and why people uh, should be part and parcel of that particular struggle. Hmm. If you look into the history of TAC, almost everybody who comes to TAC Max, we make sure that it becomes our duty at a branch level, at a community level, that these individuals are, are, are informed about the struggles. But on top of that, to 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 work in a movement like TAC, uh, which focuses on advocacy and, and activism. It means that a lot of our time is spent in making sure that we build that uh, a, a voice of communities from the local level, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of resources because there must be structures, there must be continuous engagement, there must be platforms, political platforms, where people will engage bringing forward different views until a, a time where they reach a particular a, a, a understanding. So that is not an easy work. It requires resources. 
in terms of money, it requires resources. In terms of personnel, it requires resources. In terms of other resources, so that you can make sure that you inform, you, 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 you consult, engage, and after consultation and, and engagement, there, are, there is an understanding. From there, you take people from point A to point B because all of them are aware of what is happening and what is the cause of that particular problem. Mm. Um, that's something we asked Jay Knight who we just spoke to and I'd love to get your perspective um, also from you know doing a lot of work in communities is a, lo- a lot of people are looking at the at the country right now and saying I don't feel like I have the power in a democracy the people should have the power I should be able to enforce the outcomes I want to see in South Africa then I feel like I don't have that ability to do that and I want to do something about that so what what is your advice to a, to a, somebody who feels feels helpless feel like they're not able to make institutions work for them what advice do you give that person the first thing that I am going to, to, to say to the listeners and the people of South Africa is that uh, before we belonged to the organizations on, or institutions that we belong to, we became citizens of South Africa first. So if we can have that principle in mind to say, before I belong to this political party or this social movement, I am a citizen. So each and every citizen of the country, in times of crisis, all of us have a responsibility. And that responsibility is to stand up and make sure that our voices are heard. If we can't stand up now, we must know that the politicians and those who hold the political power, every after five years, they know which power we hold as people, and that power is to vote. And we can, it cannot be true that we are always treated as voting animals. Our leaders must understand that we hold, as the people of South Africa, we hold the power. And as people of the country, we must know that we hold the power. By the time we wake up early in the morning, we choose to vote for a, a, a particular leader or political part of our choice. We are exercising that particular power and the right. And now it has, the time has arrived now for all of us as people of South Africa to reclaim back our power. And the only way to reclaim back our power is not to ban and loot is to take people of South Africa into the streets, go to democratic and constitutional institutions, and make our voices heard. And like, for instance, as I'm talking to you now, I'm coming from the market square. Uh, I I, I have been joining other South Africans uh, uh, who have been uh, 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 pledging solidarity uh, to the country and saying an end to what is happening. And from there, I went to the TAC National Council meeting, which is the highest decision-making body in TNC in between Congresses. We had a teleconference with all provincial leaders mm-hmm. uh, that as from today moving forward, we are going to mobilize forces. We are going to mobilize TNC members in seven provinces where TNC operates. We are going to mobilize partner organizations, communities, and say, let us join the voices of people of South Africa. Our country is singing, and it cannot die in our name. You know what does it mean? It means that if we are going to allow the country to be in a state where it is now, it means services won't be delivered to the people. It means the cost of living will be too high as it is now. It means when we go to health facilities, we will always experience a situation of shortages of drugs and drug stock out. Uh, shortages of nurses and all that. And the only way we can be able to improve the state of public health care systems in South Africa is only when we've got a viable economy. It's only when we have political leaders who have a backbone and who are able to lead our country without a a squabble and being attended with corruption. So we are saying to South Africa this initiative which has been 
uh, started by other progressive forces. It has nothing to do with a, a particular political party. It has to do with our country. This is our country. Mm. So that's all that we can say as GAC to people of South Africa to say, join us as we will be joining other forces uh, starting from today until Friday and next week mm-hmm. we'll be joining forces. Now, because Nelly, we so, are being affected And Nelly, sorry to interrupt you, but I just wanted to, just we don't have too much more, more time left. As as activists like you are in the TAC, there are different strategies you could take for different situations. Sometimes, sometimes when you approach an issue, you might take an issue to court. You might organize a march. You could engage, you know, government or whoever through dialogue. How do you choose the most effective strategy in these sort of situations? Perhaps, perhaps even the situation we're going through now is a case in point. How do you choose which strategy works in different circumstances? Because, because as, 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 as activists, we are not tribunist and we are not populist. Firstly, we, we, we started the situation. We are working with many partner organizations. Some of them are, 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 are legal experts. Others are health scientists and researchers and all that kind of So before we are, when we are confronted with any situation, firstly we consult and get the views of other partners and, and, and other experts to say, what does this mean to us? What does this mean to the country? And then it, it is through those engagements and, and, and those processes where we are able to say, no, in order for us to be able to make an impact on this, we think that this will be our intervention. And so we, do, we don't just sleep, we don't just sleep and wake up and think what needs to be done mm-hmm. the following day. And how important is the issue of money for, for activists and building movements and structures? We know that, that in the last few years or as a couple of years ago that the TAC had, had a bit of a funding crisis. Um, we, we just spoke to Jay Naidu who said sometimes you end up with civil society organizations spending too much time fundraising. But surely raising money and is is crucial to the to the to the work you have to do. Yes, yes, uh, I, I agree with Ukonde uh, uh, That is a that that is a problem, and it also confronts many social movements. And as the, at the end of the day, you find some of them being silent because the one who gives the money uh, is the one who is the who is the actual problem, and you cannot bite the hand that feeds you. But also, it is important for. A civil society to get funding, and that's why we continue uh, uh, encouraging people in South Africa, those who, who can afford, to support the initiatives of civil society movement. Like as I'm talking to you now, as much as we have, in principle, as an organisation, text, we have taken a decision. But to agree on one thing, that out of the money that we have as an organisation, there is no line item which is dedicated for a campaign like, like this one. It means whatever interventions that we will make, the starting point, we as leaders, we need to approach some people who, who can assist us and say, we want to mobilize people and uh, so that they can join the millions of people of Africa, but we don't have money uh, 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 to take people from point A to point B. So can you help us? in order for us to be able to do this. So it, it means it becomes a challenge for a social movement to waste its time in organizing structures and the people on the ground. And on the other hand, you have to, uh, 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 to raise a, a fund. But if you don't have funds, it means you won't be able to respond on, on political and, uh, issues and advocacy matters in good time because the problem will be resources. That's why it is important for civil society movements to be independent from government, not to be dependent from the funding that is coming from the government, but 
those who are able, those the business sector and other and other people who are able to fund civil society, they must continue funding the civil society. It's easy for civil society now to stick to, to power. Because the problem in South Africa, you don't, you, you don't see civil society organizations. Anneli, unfortunately, like I'm going to have to... Sorry, Anneli, sorry to interrupt no you. No problem. Uh, we've just run out of time, and I know you have a meeting to run to, so I'm going to say a big thank you for making time to chat to us on your experience. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, that's us chatting to the National General Secretary of the TAC, Anele Yawa. Uh, always so passionate. It's always it's always sort of hard to wrap it up, but you know we you know we have we have time constraints. One of our triple challenges. We have a fourth one here, which is which is time. Um, Greg, something really interesting that Anele said right at the end, and I, it's odd that I picked this up because it wasn't really one of his key points. But saying when non-profits are reliant on government funding, that of course creates a, you know, an, an issue then a conflict of interest and how important it is for everyday citizens to fund causes they care about. And I just thought that was such a nice thing to bring up in that if I'm, if I'm listening to this show and Jay is saying create a movement that inspires and whatever, and I'm thinking, listen, I, I, I've got a job. You know what I mean? I go to work. I have to, you know, I have to do what I have to do. I don't, or I feel I don't have every day to go out there and knock knock on doors but i think an, perhaps an easy way to get started is to say what causes are you passionate about what causes are you interested in and perhaps step one is just supporting them in their work as you believe in their work in their causes perhaps that's yeah, an easy way to start i suppose so i think yeah. i think a couple of the interesting things and now they pointed out in terms of funding is one this challenge where a lot of organizations um sort of even these ground level movements and things sometimes you can be funded by or, or a source of funding can be the direct people you're trying to confront, for example, government through, through government funds. And then you have to weigh up the influence as to how much influence will they have over your, of your actions and will you be compromised? Um, another one I think that's important, and this comes up specifically in tax case, is where does your funding come from in terms of uh, location? So a big problem that TAC had was when organizations like PEPFAR, the, the American, um, uh, sort of donor, body, I guess, yeah. uh, was, was really focusing on the fight against HIV AIDS. And in South Africa, it donated a lot of money and helped, helped support TAC. Then PEPFAR, then the US moved their funding priorities out of South Africa yeah. after the country got a better grip on the situation and, and, and had the mass rollout of ARVs. And it left organizations like TAC, um, very vulnerable to, to being able to continue their work. And other organizations ended up closing because actually they were too dependent on, on this PEPFAR money and these foreign sources. And when those, when, when those priorities changed, um, they ended up closing down. Uh, and I think a lesson from some sort of civil society workers that I know sort of through that period was that you have to prioritize local funding. Because local people know your issues and they'll hopefully continue to fund you and those issues, uh, and not just pull out, pull out of the country and divert their resources elsewhere. Absolutely. We're just going to the final portion on the show and we're asking the big question, which is how do we best organize for, for the changes we want to see? Next, we'll be chatting to Busisiwe Seabe, who's a Fees Must Fall activist. Busisiwe, we want to hear, did you wear black for Black Monday yesterday? Um, absolutely not. I mean, um, I'm opposed to being called to the picket line when it suits white settler capital. So at that point in time, I didn't think it was in the best interest of not only myself, but um, the brand also and the movement that I represent. 
um, to go out wearing black um, against President Jacob Zuma when the you know the whole Black Monday collective was not there when Marikana happened, it was not there when Fees must all happened for the past two years. It makes no sense for me to then pick it with them at this point in time, just because of the fact that they and their class and their capital is being challenged. Well, see, I know I asked that jokingly, but I, I sort of wanted to, to lead, use that to lead into the wider question, which is, and I'd love if you could draw on your fees, must fall experience on this. Um, when, when we're trying to get, you know, numbers and, and lots of people to, to push and agitate for the changes we want to see, that, that requires working with people who we may not always see eye to eye with, uh, and people who may have some diverging interests, but there's sort of an agreement that on this particular thing, we, we agree to work together. Um, you've also just mentioned the challenges of saying no. The, the, there are certain people that no. When when they push the call to action, I won't be a part of that. So how have you in the past, when your experience with fees must fall, navigated working with a sort of a broad church of people with different political parties, different ends, and saying we are going to work on this specific thing together? How have you navigated that? I mean, through navigating, we need to look at people's self-interest um, more than anything to see what would call people to come to the picket line to support a specific movement or campaign. And in the in, in the light of fees must fall in the fees must fall movement, we looked at what people would get um, and would benefit from the arena of the fees must fall movement, be it them having access to thousands of students not only at Vitz University but across the country, or them having you know um, media platforms to engage society on that would also obviously include um, some of the things that they wanted to champion when an example of this would be Uzelan Zimavavi mm. who has been in support of the Fismas 4 movement but has also used the movement as a platform to announce the launching of the new federation. I mean those are the kinds of things that we look at to see um, someone's personal interest mm. and uh, also to see how exactly they're going to benefit from the movement but more than anything activists and organizers um, should look in to a sort of cultural technology, right, which provides a source of power um, and when it is found and developed to set like an insurgent of practices. Um, this allows us to be able to do two things. One, um, which is to disrupt business as usual and people who agree with the disruption of, you know, white settler capital in this country in the aims of not only um, attaining power, uh, but also to make customary social relations and institutionalized power uh, possible um, to conduct as usual. You know, it's something that is very beneficial and that's some of the things that we look into. So, um, you know, when, when we look at people who we can align ourselves with and who we can possibly foster, um, you know, this movement and continue the movement with, we're looking at people like black musicians as well. I, I, I think you've seen Simpiwetana, you've seen Tandisa Mazwai, who have been part and initiated a massive wave of cultural activism as well. Um, they have been actively involved in the movement. So we're looking at a, a variety of things uh, when it comes to who we get to work with and cooperate with because to a large extent every individual carries a certain amount of currency and we need to know what kind of currency that is and how we can best utilize it to get to the end goal. Absolutely. Now we see I'm just going back to the statement you you said at the the start which was you didn't march for Marikana, you didn't do you weren't there on these key national issues that, 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 that we were protesting on and that you didn't pay attention to and suddenly 
suddenly one one is now interested in 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 her doing a call to action and i completely get that i completely understand that but i'm worried about a flip side which says are we locking out anyone who has suddenly had a political awakening a wokeness and says you know what i i feel strongly about this and i want to get involved are we are we being exclusionary when we say ah you haven't been here before and we're not interested in you suddenly coming now that it's convenient for you of course not, right? Um, you know, to people who have just become enlightened or who have just recently become conscious to engage in such movements like Black Monday and the march that is planned on Friday is very encouraging and is very welcomed. However, they would have to engage in this um, with a lot of caution, right? So we need to look at the political atmosphere of this country at the moment. And I understand that not everyone is politically politically educated, um, just as, as some of us are. But apart from that, we need to be able to look at what are the motivations behind you going there. Are you going there honestly and actually believing in the cause that is being advanced? And if you are, is that is that cause sustainable? Is it something that will be able to be moved and built on to something greater and bigger that will be able to affect change? If so, then people should obviously go ahead because this also allows us to be able to network with one another, right? So whether engaging in street-level activism or pursuing formal change through judicial, legislative, or electoral processes, movement organizers and movement um, participants need to think rationally and strategically about about resource mobilization and um, oppositional forces as well because those are prevalent and they, they're going to come across such things. So if you're going to engage essentially in protest action, mm-hmm. if you're going to engage in marches, you need to be cognizant of everything that is happening before you plunge yourself um, within those matters. Absolutely. Now we'll see, we're going back to sort of the nitty-gritty of, of how to organize people towards a, a desired outcome. I'm curious around your experience with Fees Must Fall uh, in the context of other movements we've seen locally and around the world who've really prioritized a flat leaderless structure. Um, I'd love if you could just talk us through some of sort of the benefits and challenges that you faced with this in a view, in a view of sort of informing other people who may be sort of thinking of, of, of employing that particular structure. I mean, when you look at the seasonal soul structure, um, we don't have a hierarchical kind of um, structure, whereas there is a president and then there are deputies and officials and positions. Um, we're not interested in positions. We're not interested in titles either. Everyone that is involved in fees must fall as a leader um, in their own right, in their own space. And we always advocate that students should engage one another and should engage representatives um, that go on and attend meetings on their behalf um, if they are unable to do so. But what we try and do more than anything is we try and make sure that if there is a meeting that is being held in the name of students, um, under fees must so that students should be consulted before that meeting happens. Otherwise, you have a situation um, like the one that happened a couple of weeks ago with the education crisis um, convention in in Midrand, where um, it disrupted in a political dispute rather than one um, rather than engagement on free quality decolonized education. So our flat structure essentially is to say that everything comes from the bottom up and is moved from the masses and everyone. We need to have a consensus um, among students, not only at our various institutions, but collectively across the country. And this is something that we strive for at Fees Must Fall, to make sure that everyone is heard, that every viewpoint is is assessed, 
and that we take into consideration what the consequences of various actions are. One thing that we've also maintained and we've stressed across the country is that we're a non-violent movement, but we are not afraid to practice militancy when it is necessary. And there's a very big difference between violence and militancy. One thing that we've been able to, to do, and I think this is one of the most beautiful things about Seas Must Fall, is that we've moved outside of our political structures. We've moved outside of the ANC, we've moved outside of the EFF, and we've come together as a band of students to say that we have we agree on one thing, and that is the one demand that we have tabled to the president, the one demand we've tabled to the Minister of Higher Education, to say that we want free quality decolonized education. So we're constantly going through a consultative process. We're constantly engaging students, reporting back to students. We're constantly having conversations and, you know, addressing the elephants in the room. And more than anything else, we're always holding the center to say that although we might gain small victories, such as insourcing, which still hasn't been complete today, but those small victories that we've been um, getting at the moment, we're able to consolidate them and see how to move forward as a collective until we reach the end goal, which is free quality decolonized education. And then we can start engaging the question of the land. So the flat structure, more than anything, is to make sure that everyone is equal. Um, and we, we're not just practicing equality, but we're also um, practicing equity as well, which is something that is very important. And um, more than anything else, what we do at these must fall is we make sure that everyone's contribution is taken in and everyone's contribution is tabled um, equally and on an equity basis so that we can present everyone's demands collectively yeah, but instead see, of um, having a... Sorry to cut you off. I hear you on that. I just want to push back on... I completely understand the idea of wanting a flat structure and wanting decisions to come from the bottom and, and direction to come from the bottom, but surely you're not giving enough credit to how difficult it can be for everybody to be on the same page on the same thing and the amount of time that takes and energy that takes to try and get everybody to agree on what we're doing. Sorry? It is a headache at times. Um, I know I've had sleepless nights. I know other leaders across the country have had sleepless nights as well because there's a difficulty of getting everyone that needs to contribute into the same room, first of all, and getting everyone into the same space. Then there's a difficulty of, you know, chairing a meeting or holding a meeting where everyone can contribute equally and everyone's voices are um, weighed equally, right? And then there's the issue of intersectionality and um, the fact that patriarchy also also exists and, um, you know, it, it spears its ugly horns out when we're an intersectional movement, essentially. So we have to deal with a variety of things to say that there are certain groups of people that are listened to, there are others that are not intersectionality issues, there's religious issues as well, there's political disputes, there's a variety of things. But like I said before, when we do get into a point or a situation where we are no longer tolerant of each other, we remind ourselves of why we're here in the first place and we remind ourselves about the one objective we all agree on, regardless of everything we don't agree on. And that's the way we've been moving and operating for the past two years. I hear you. Was you see, we, unfortunately, we have to let you go. I have a, you know, an arm length, uh, arm's length of questions to ask, but unfortunately, we've run out of time. We'll make sure to have you in studio next time we do this. Thanks for chatting to us. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Wonderful. Everybody listening, I'm sorry for the abrupt end, but you know, time as always is a challenge. Um, I'm going to just view this as a part one in a, a recurring conversation of us asking on the show, what are the best ways that you know, everyday citizens can mobilize to create the South Africa they want to see? Thanks for tuning in. It's a daily Mavic show on cliffcentral.com. Thanks for everybody we spoke to. And of course, my comrade Greg Nicholson for always making the magic behind the scenes. We'll see you next week. Same time, same place.
Average Show on cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com.